Well, good morning, everybody. Great to see you all. This is fantastic. I want to say thanks to Jennifer and to Dr. Lowe and for the worship team. They put in a lot of hard work to make chapel all that it is, and uh, I'm very, very grateful. Chapel is part of the learning experience at Indiana Wesleyan University, and all of us that are alumni have had this wonderful experience uh, of having chapel. On any particular day, it may not feel wonderful, but over the course of time, uh, of your four years here and, and after you graduate, those of us that, have, that are alumni of 94 years now, uh, we look back on our chapel experience as part of the formative experience of our time here at Indiana Wesleyan University, and I personally would never, I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade uh, the days I had in chapel, mainly because that's when I got to sit beside my girlfriend who became my wife. She was a nursing major, <laughs> and I was Christian Ministries, and the only time we ever saw each other were, was in chapel or in the library, and uh, so that was great. Looking forward to having fun tomorrow. Are any of the Carmen women here? Carmen? All right. I'm going to be on their team tomorrow. I don't know what they're going to do with me, but I'm going to, I'm going to be there. <laughs> And we'll see how that goes. I, I don't know how deep that pond is over there, but I'm going to find out, I'll bet. But uh, that'll be fun. I thought I would just, before I share with you my prayer for you as students at Indiana Wesleyan, I thought I might just share with you a little bit about our university. You've come to one of four major administrative units of our university. This university has about 15,000 students, so the 3,000 students on this campus are one-fifth of the student body that you belong to. Uh, mo many of those students, 8,000 of them, take their courses completely online, and they're spread all over our country and around the world. It's not unusual for us to have graduates come to one of our graduation commencement ceremonies from China or other places uh, in the world. Number one medical doctor who came here for a graduation ceremony after taking his MBA with us, and he said uh, uh, he, he, he had never been here before. He was from China. And he said, I just wanted to see if IWU was a real place. And so, uh, so he came. Last year, we had a kindergarten teacher, teaches in a government communist uh, school in China, but took her Master of Education degree at our program that we, that we offer in Beijing uh, with a company called uh, LDI, Leadership Development International. She's, uh, I think, married now. They were, they were uh, fiancés at the time a pastor of a house church in China, and they had a government, I don't know if you call it a raid or whatever, that came to their house church just about a month before she was supposed to come here for the graduation ceremony, having completed her MED. And so she, she'd never been outside of China before, never traveled anywhere else in the world, and she was afraid that she wouldn't get a visa to get out of the country to come to graduation. But for whatever reason, the Lord opened that door, and here she was, and she stood right here on this platform, and I'll tell you, her smile lit up all of Grant County, and she said, this is my university, these are my fellow Christians, and I'm so proud of my university, where I learned how to be a better teacher, and her school is a, is a model that people come from all over China to study her, her kindergarten. So you're a part of a, of a big family of students and faculty that literally stretches around the world. And as I said, there are four major administrative units uh, in our university. There's residential education, which is here on the Marion campus. And the chief executive officer who is in charge of and is fully empowered 
to lead this campus uh, program really serves very much like a president of many smaller uh, Council of Christian Colleges and Universities colleges is, uh, is Dr. Newman. You all know, I think you've met him, you remember him by now, he's, he's spoken to you I think once uh, to the incoming students a week ago and then he spoke Monday I believe this week. No, Jim spoke Monday, I can't remember the last time he did, but, uh, but he is, he's the head of this, of the campus. So in many ways, he's, he's kind of like uh, the president of this, of this campus. We also have non-residential education, which has about 11,000 students. And that's presided over by a woman by the name of Audrey Hahn, who's been here at IW for about 20 years, 23 years. She's a wonderful leader, godly Christian woman, and um, gives oversight to, as I said, about 11 or 12,000 students and uh, about a $100 million budget that she has that's a part of our university. So she's the CEO for that. Then we have Wesley Seminary, and Wayne Schmidt is the vice president for Wesley Seminary, which is the third part of Indiana Wesleyan University. And the fourth is our newest, and that's Excelsia College in Sydney, Australia. So this university has four administrative units, each with a leader that gives oversight to them, and uh, the CEO of Excelsior College in Sydney is a guy by the name of Greg Ruff, wonderful Christian man. He's been here on our campus. And uh, I'm looking forward to taking some of you to visit Excelsior with me when I go over to Sydney to visit them for their board meetings. So be thinking if you'd like to go with me one of these days to experience uh, your, your fellow students. And when I was with them the last time, I sat down with a group of them and had prayer with them, listened to them, asked questions about their experience, and honestly, they had a great Australian accent, <laughs> and they liked to go down to the beach and, and, and spend time at the beach. But other than that, you wouldn't, I couldn't tell much difference between you all and them. Very, very similar students, similar aspirations and desires. So if you'd like to get to know Excelsior College one of these days, um, drop me a line. We'll see if we can work out who I can take with me from time to time. So my job as president is to, uh, to kind of give oversight to all of that. I don't manage any of those units directly. We have wonderful leaders that are empowered to do that. But my job is really, as president of the whole university, to give oversight and to give direction to where we're going together as a university. So with those thoughts in mind, the question that I want to speak to you about today is, as, as president of this wonderful university, with faculty and students and administrators literally all around the world, in many different cultures, from the Midwest and Indiana, to Sydney, Australia, to Beijing, China, to uh, Jakarta, Indonesia, we're just getting ready to start a new program there. What's my prayer for our students? What do I hope happens? for the students who come to Indiana Wesleyan University and get degrees from us. I was, I was kind of looking to see what, what do most people, what do people say they get out of college? So, of course, you know, the, the, great, the great authority we have now for all things is the internet. So I went to look on the internet to see what do people say, if you ask them the question, what did you gain or what did you learn from your college experience, what do people say about that? So here's some of what they say. One guy said, I learned that I can't remember a single thing when it comes to finals, so my memory is horrid. Another person said, the most important life-changing college event for me was meeting my wife. 
We've been together 17 years. Another person said, I learned that the friends you make there will last longer than the information you learned. <laughs> Another person said, I learned that failure is not forever. Amen. Don't you love that? That's not an excuse to get an F on your next test, but. <laughs> Another person said, college taught me that I cannot trust everything people tell me. I need to take control of my education. I shouldn't let someone decide what I should learn. Never stop learning, unlearning, and relearning. Well, that's pretty good. Another person said, I learned that I have an incredible drive to succeed. Paying for my own college made me self-sufficient and more mature. He also said, my parents could pay, and they wouldn't. He said, I learned to organize my time and concentrate on what was in front of me, the job of the school. I figured out how to budget and how to survive when the car broke down or I got sick. Another person said, I found out that I was not alone, that there was a discipline that looked at the world the way I did. I was not the only person who observed society from the outside. I learned that cultural anthropology was an accepted alternate way of viewing the world. As a former anthropology prof, I love that. <laughs> While I still felt like an outsider, I didn't feel alone or like a freak any longer. Another person said, I think it's true that the benefit of college is not about the stuff you learn, but how the experience contributes to your worldview. I was looking through an old notebook recently and was shocked at some of the stuff I apparently knew back in the day. Funny how so many of the details escape me, and yet I have a definite sense that my overall intelligence rests on many of those small epiphanies. Otherwise, it's certainly useful to learn how to arrive at places regularly and promptly, how to pretend to listen, how to finish a 15-page paper in a day, how to cram for exams, then take the tests loaded up on quadruple espresso. <laughs> this is why Macan is so successful. <laughs> Finally, another person said, I learned that questions are more important than answers. College didn't teach me this, but I happened to be in college when I discovered this. So now I'd like you to imagine something with me. Think of the people who know you and love you best, okay? Maybe it's your parents, aunt and uncles, grandparents, friends. Think of those parents, grandparents, friends, whoever that group is, people who love you and care the most about you and your life and your success. And they've seen you go off to college, and now they've sat down at a time when they pray. What would you imagine their prayer is for you? Can you imagine what they pray for you? I think there were days when my parents said, Dear God, don't let the boy screw up. Dear God, help that guy to find himself. Can you imagine what their prayers are for you? Well, as I thought about my prayers for you, you know, as president of this university, and I rub shoulders with you, and I see you in Baldwin, and I get to know some of you more than in a passing glance, but, but all of you, 
What, what is my prayer? And I thought about the words of Paul in Philippians, and I, there are three things I just want to leave with you that, that I pray for you. And they come from Paul's words. Philippians chapter 1. I thank my God every time I remember you. And that's true. I do thank God for you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. It's right for, for me to feel this way about you since I have you in my heart. For whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. With that in mind, here are my three prayers for you. First, I pray that you will learn the habits of a scholarly mind abounding in knowledge. Now that phrase comes from a writer by the name of Marjorie Lamp Mead who wrote a chapter in a book about the Christian liberal arts where she, the title of the, the chapter was The Lost Tools of Learning and the habits of a scholarly mind. Now, you might not think of yourselves as, as scholars. It might sound too exalted for me to pray for you to have the habits of a scholarly mind. So maybe it might help to put it this way. Maybe I should say, I pray that you'll learn the habits of a learning mind, a mind that is hungry for learning, that is always seeking that new insight and ability to understand. In order to have the habits of a scholarly or a learning mind, one of the things that needs to happen to us and that I pray happens to you here at Indiana Wesleyan is that your curiosity, your intellectual curiosity will be awakened. You know, when, when I came to college here in 1973, many, many years ago, it was called Marion College back then, I had, was born and I'd grown up in the Philippines, and I never had really lived much in the United States. So when I came to Marion, I was 15 years old, came to Marion High School, and my whole time was just spent trying to figure out how to live in America. What, what was, how do you live in this culture in the Midwest, in Marion, Indiana? Because it was nothing at all like where I grew up. And the people that I was trying to be friends with had no clue where the Philippines was or what it was like. And it was not easy to make friends. I thank God for the few friends I had. But I, was, I struggled to get through school. I struggled to make decent grades. I knew I was going to go to college. And I really wasn't interested in going anywhere else besides here, Marion College. But when I came here, I said to myself, what I want to do is I want to make some friends. I just want to have fun. I don't want to struggle anymore. I just want to have fun. There was no sense really of an intellectual purpose or really of an intellectual curiosity for me. I had never found anything that awakened in me 
the passion and desire to learn. I did my schoolwork because the teacher said I should. But there was not an answering in my spirit to say this is something that I do because I'm passionate about it. And I love it. I wanted to be a pilot. I wanted to be a missionary pilot. I loved airplanes. And I started taking flying lessons. But I knew I had to take some Bible courses before I could actually go to missionary pilot training. And I happened to get with a guy by the name of David Thompson. And David began teaching Bible. Now some of you have the privilege of sitting at the feet of some of our brilliant Bible teachers these days. But as I sat and listened to David Thompson teach the Word, something began to open up in my mind. And for the first time, an intellectual curiosity began to rise in me to say, wow, if I could pursue the kind of knowledge he has, that would really be fascinating. The facility to understand. This was the beginning of my awakening of intellectual curiosity. And once I began to experience the joy of, of, of exploration and of finding new ideas and new thoughts, it became an unquenchable passion for me. And then I began to try to build the disciplines of careful thought. You know, I started taking Greek, as Bible students do. And uh, if any of you have taken a foreign language like that, Latin or Greek, or a language that's not spoken necessarily, um, you know that a lot of what you do is you sit at a desk or you sit at a table and you translate sentences and you parse verbs. And you try to make sense of this language that nobody speaks, to try to understand it. I'd like to give an example then of the habit of careful thought that came to me through that. For the first year that I studied Greek, it was nothing but drudgery. I had to make myself go sit down at that table and translate those sentences, parse the verbs, learn case, learn number, learn gender, try to put the sentences together, and then try to take it to the New Testament and puzzle out what a Greek verse in the New Testament was really saying. It seemed like a hopeless task. I was convinced that I would never really learn Greek, and I knew beyond a doubt I would never enjoy learning Greek. <laughs> Something strange happened. The second year I was studying Greek, I found that I began to look forward to those times of sitting down at the desk and slogging my way through translations. Now, I don't know how that happens. It's probably for some of you that are in chemistry or biology, it's the awakening of your mind to study the cells, to study the table of elements, which are actually worse than Greek for me. <laughs> but learning the habits of careful thought come to us as we commit ourselves to the hard work of mastering a body of knowledge. And honestly, I pray for you to have this experience. Because you live in a world that is not committed, bless you, <laughs> you live in a world that is not necessarily committed to careful thought. And part of what I pray happens to you as a result of this experience 
is that that ability to think carefully, to develop a lifelong pursuit of learning, will be true and real in your life. And in doing that, you will receive tools that will last you long, long after this college experience that you have. Can I give you three metaphors for learning? Now, I know you've all gone through the process of trying to read a syllabus, trying to figure out what you're supposed to do next in your course, what the learning outcomes are, you know, what you have to do when. And quite honestly, even as someone who wrote syllabi for a long, long time, I often found them confusing. Not all that helpful for me to really understand what I was supposed to learn when I walked into a course. So can I give you three metaphors to use to help develop the habits of your mind to think about learning? One is you can think about learning as filling your bucket. Second is making a map. Third is entering a conversation. So let me give you this, this task to do. You're just at the beginning of a semester. As you go into a course, why don't you sit down at the beginning of the course and ask yourself this question. What facts am I going to get in this course that I can put in my intellectual bucket? What skills am I going to hone in this course that I can put in my pail and carry with me from this course? Learn the syllabus, but when you walk in and sit down, ask yourself that question. If I think of myself as a bucket or a pail to be filled with something from this experience, what facts are going to be useful to me here? And what skills might I hone? But that metaphor really isn't enough. That doesn't capture the power of learning. You might think of it like this. Walk in and sit down in your course and say, I'm going to make a map. What's the lay of the land here? What are the main features of the land of this course? How are they related to each other? What's valuable about this place that I'm in? Thirdly, another metaphor. Think of it as entering a conversation. When you walk into the course, what are people talking about in here? What vocabulary are they using? What are they saying about those things? And why does this conversation matter? These are part of the habits of a careful mind. My second thing I pray for you. I pray that you will build the foundations of a lasting faith. That you will abound in insight. You know, as I think back over the years since I was in college here, there have been four challenges to my faith. And I think you're going to have those same challenges. There were the challenges of my, to my faith that came when I encountered intellectual questions that I couldn't really answer about the faith that I thought I had. Where people challenged me with ideas that didn't seem to fit with my faith. And I had a choice to make. I could either ignore those challenges or I could take them seriously. And I could ask myself, am I going to work through to see if my faith is still intact on the other side of those intellectual challenges? Thankfully, you know, I, I enjoyed the task of working through those questions. I faced the question, the challenge to my faith about my fundamental self-will. 
Was I committed to myself and my will more than to God? And this was a challenge to my faith. I faced the challenges of difficult circumstances. Times in my life when it didn't seem like God was treating me fairly. That all those choruses I sang about God being sufficient and God being able and God loving and God being with me didn't seem to be true. And then there was the temptation to say, you know, it's all just a man-made lie. And finally, there have been the challenges of comfortable circumstances. When I started to succeed, and it seemed like I maybe needed God less and less. And in these times, you have to have a faith that is solid, that will last, that will not give way before the challenges and the storms of life. You know, this summer I went with my brother to, to New York City to visit, and we went to the Redeemer Church, which is uh, in, in Manhattan. He lives in New Jersey. So we were driving uh, across one of the bridges, and at one point in time we could look across at the skyline of Manhattan. And, you know, if, you, if you've ever seen that, you know how Manhattan is from the tip up to the north. And on the southern side, the tip of Manhattan is where all the big skyscrapers are, where the World Trade Center was and where the new, the new tall building is. And then you come to a portion where there's no tall buildings. And then you come to another portion on the skyline where the Empire State Building is and there are more skyscrapers. Okay, so when you look at, as we were doing from the west, you look at the skyline of Manhattan, you've got tall buildings, nothing, and another set of tall buildings, and then it goes up north into to New York. So my brother was saying, you know why it looks that way? He said that the thing about it is, in the middle of Manhattan, when you drill down in the soil in the middle of Manhattan, there's no bedrock. So the engineers realized that you can't build any skyscrapers there. You can only build the skyscrapers where there's a substrata of bedrock that they can get down to and anchor these tall, tall buildings. So they had to find where the bedrock was in order to build these great edifices. If you're going to have a faith that lasts, you need to find the bedrock of truth that will not compromise for you, on which you can build a faith, a lasting faith, a faith that has a future. And I pray that that's part of what happens to you here at Indiana Wesleyan University. Finally, I pray that your life will bear the fruit of a righteous heart. You know, I was sitting one time in a cabinet meeting here at Indiana Wesleyan many years ago, not our current cabinet. And we were talking about some of the rules of this place. And there were more and different rules back then. <laughs> and, um, you know, there were rules about how we're supposed to dress and, and, and all those kinds of things. And there are rules about where you could wear jewelry in your body. You know, could you, only, could you have earrings? Could only women or men have earrings? Could you have nose studs? Those kinds of things. So we were discussing this um, in, uh, you know, in the cabinet. And, and somebody made the comment to say, well, you know what, if, if, we, give, if we don't have those rules, 
then part of our distinctive and part of the way people understand who we are, part of, the, part of our identity is going to go away. Now, I don't really want to argue against that point of view, but it set me to thinking. What really is the fruit of a righteous life? What are the markers that should be in our lives? But if I'm a part of Indiana Wesleyan University community and I've, and I've spent four years being formed by this culture and this place, what should be the markers? What is the fruit? And I started thinking about a faith that keeps the rules uh, versus a faith that bears the fruit of a righteous heart. Now, keeping rules is not bad. It's necessary. We would crash into each other. We would create havoc and tragedy for one another if we disregarded all the rules. Keeping the rules is not a bad thing, but it's not sufficient. In fact, the New Testament tells us what the markers of a righteous heart really are. What is the fruit of a righteous heart? In Paul, Paul's letter to the Galatians, he says it like this. You want to know who the Christians are? You want to kind of ferret out who's been shaped in the image of Jesus? Look for these things. You know what they are? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. You know what? Friends, I really pray for you that as you're here, not only you will develop the habits of a scholarly or a learning mind, not only the foundations of a faith that will last, but that in you will be formed these fruit of a righteous life. That's part of what we pursue. So my prayer is that you will be creators of beauty, sculptors of minds, builders of great organizations, inventors of breakthroughs yet unimagined. I pray that you will love justice and live mercy, that you will be uncompromising in your stand for righteousness and truth, that you will, be, you will embrace the ambiguity and the messiness of grace, that you will be peacemakers in a world of conflict, that you will build up where others tear down, that you will create where others consume, that you'll seek understanding where others merely shout opinions, that you'll forgive when others condemn, that you'll walk through life with eternity in your heart, that you will lead people to Jesus. Come meet this person I met. That you'll be people of wise heads, kind hearts, and open hands. That you'll experience and therefore learn how to create in other places communities that are safe harbors, havens of rest for those you love and for the world's most vulnerable people. I pray that instead of judging and using others, you will have a natural turn to love and offer grace.
This is my prayer for you as students at Indiana Wesleyan University.